Section 13 of The Confidence Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M.B. The Confidence Man. His Masquerade by Herman Melville. Chapter 25. The Cosmopolitan Makes an Acquaintance. In the act of retiring, the Cosmopolitan was met by a passenger who, with the bluff abord of the West, thus addressed him, though a stranger. Queer coon, your friend. Had a little scrimmage with him myself. Rather entertaining old coon if he wasn't so deuced analytical. Reminded me somehow of what I've heard about Colonel John Mordock of Illinois. Only your friend ain't quite so good a fellow at bottom, I should think. It was in the semicircular porch of a cabin, opening a recess from the deck, lit by a zoned lamp swung overhead and sending its light vertically down like the sun at noon. Beneath the lamp stood the speaker, affording to anyone disposed to it no unfavorable chance for scrutiny, but the glance now resting on him betrayed no such rudeness. A man neither tall nor stout, neither short nor gaunt, but with a body fitted as by measure to the service of his mind, for the rest one less favored perhaps in his features than his clothes, and of these the beauty may have been less in the fit than the cut to say nothing of the fineness of the nap seeming out of keeping with something the reverse of fine in the skin, and the unsuitableness of a violet vest, sending up sunset hues to a countenance betokening a kind of bilious habit. But upon the whole it could not be fairly said that his appearance was unprepossessing. Indeed, to the congenial it would have been doubtless not uncongenial while to others it could not fail to be at least curiously interesting, from the warm air of florid cordiality contrasting itself with one knows not what kind of aguish sallowness of saving discretion lurking behind it. Ungracious critics might have thought that the manner flushed the man, something in the same fictitious way that the vest flushed the cheek, and though his teeth were singularly good, those same ungracious ones might have hinted that they were too good to be true, or rather were not so good as they might be, since the best false teeth are those made with at least two or three blemishes, the more to look lifelike. But fortunately for better constructions, no such critics had the stranger now in eye, only the cosmopolitan who, after in the first place acknowledging his advances with a mute salute, in which acknowledgment, if there seemed less of spirit than in his way of accosting the Missourian, it was probably because of the saddening sequel of that late interview, thus now replied, Colonel John Mordock, repeating the words abstractedly, that surname recalls reminiscences. Pray, with enlivened air, was he any way connected with the Mordocks of Mordock Hall, Northamptonshire, England? I know no more of the Mordocks of Mordock Hall than of the Burdocks of Burdock Hut, returned the other with the air somehow of one whose fortunes had been of his own making. All I know is that the late Colonel John Mordock was a famous one in his time. I like Lochiel's, finger like a trigger, nerve like a catamount's, and with but two little oddities, seldom stirred without his rifle and hated Indians like snakes. 
Your Mordock, then, would seem a Mordock of Misanthrope Hall, the woods. <laughs> no very sleek creature, the colonel, I fancy. Uh, sleek or not, he was no uncombed one, but silky-bearded and curly-headed, and to all but Indians, juicy as a peach. But Indians? How the late Colonel John Mordock, Indian-hater of Illinois, did hate Indians, to be sure. Never heard of such a thing. Hate Indians? Why should he or anybody else hate Indians? I admire Indians. Indians, I have always heard, to be one of the finest of the primitive races, possessed of many heroic virtues. Some noble women, too. When I think of Pocahontas, I am ready to love Indians. Then there is Massasoit, and Philip of Mount Hope, and Tecumseh, and Red Jacket, and Logan, all heroes. And there's the Five Nations, and Araucanians, federations and communities of heroes. God bless me, hate Indians. Surely the late Colonel John Mordock must have wandered in his mind. Wandered in the woods considerably, but never wandered elsewhere that I ever heard. Are you in earnest? Was there ever one who so made it his particular mission to hate Indians that, to designate him, a special word has been coined? Indian hater? Even so. Dear me, you take it very calmly. But really, I would like to know something about this Indian hating. I can hardly believe such a thing to be. Could you favor me with a little history of the extraordinary man you mentioned? With all my heart and immediately stepping from the porch, gestured the cosmopolitan to a settee nearby on deck. There, sir, sit you there, and I will sit here beside you. You desire to hear of Colonel John Mordock. Well, a day in my boyhood is marked with a white stone. The day I saw the colonel's rifle, powder horn attached, hanging in a cabin on the west bank of the Wabash River. I was going westward a long journey through the wilderness with my father. It was high noon, and we had stopped at the cabin to unsaddle and bait. The man at the cabin pointed out the rifle and told whose it was, adding that the colonel was that moment sleeping on wolf-skins in the corn-loft above, so we must not talk very loud, for the colonel had been out all night hunting, Indians, mind, and it would be cruel to disturb his sleep. Curious to see one so famous, we waited two hours over, in hopes he would come forth. But he did not. So, it being necessary to get to the next cabin before nightfall, we had at last to ride off without the wished-for satisfaction. Though, to tell the truth, I, for one, did not go away entirely ungratified, for, while my father was watering the horses, I slipped back into the cabin, and, stepping a round or two up the ladder, pushed my head through the trap and peered about. Not much light in the loft, but off in the further corner I saw what I took to be the wolf-skins, and on them a bundle of something like a drift of leaves, and at one end what seemed a moss-ball, and over it deer-antlers branched, and close by a small squirrel sprang out from a maple bowl of nuts, brushed the moss-ball with his tail, threw a hole, and vanished, squeaking. That bit of woodland scene was all I saw. No Colonel Mordock there, unless that moss-ball was his curly head seen in the back view. I would have gone clear up, but the man below had warned me that though, from his camping habits, the Colonel could sleep through thunder, 
he was for the same cause amazing quick to waken at the sound of footsteps, however soft, and especially if human. "'Excuse me,' said the other, softly laying his hand on the narrator's wrist, "'but I fear the colonel was of a distrustful nature, little or no confidence. He was a little suspicious-minded, wasn't he?' "'Not a bit. Knew too much. Suspected nobody.' but was not ignorant of Indians. Well, though, as you may gather, I never fully saw the man, yet have I, one way and another, heard about as much of him as any other. In particular, I have heard his history again and again from my father's friend James Hall, the judge, you know. In every company being called upon to give this history, which none could better do, the judge at last fell into a style so methodic you would have thought he spoke less to mere auditors than to an invisible amanuensis. Seemed talking for the press. Very impressive way with him, indeed. <laughs> and I, having an equally impressible memory, think that, upon a pinch, I can render you the judge upon the colonel, almost word for word. Do so, by all means, said the cosmopolitan, well pleased. Shall I give you the judge's philosophy and all? As to that, rejoined the other gravely, pausing over the pipe-bowl he was filling, the desirableness, to a man of a certain mind, of having another man's philosophy given, depends considerably upon what school of philosophy the other man belongs to. Of what school or system was the judge, pray? Why, though he knew how to read and write, the judge never had much schooling. But, I should say, he belonged, if anything, to the free school system. Yes, a true patriot. The judge went in strong for free schools. In philosophy? The man of a certain mind, then, while respecting the judge's patriotism and not blind to the judge's capacity for narrative, such as he may prove to have, might, perhaps, with prudence, waive an opinion of the judge's probable philosophy. But I am no rigorist. Proceed, I beg, his philosophy or not, as you please. Well, I would mostly skip that part, only to begin some reconnoitering of the ground in a philosophical way the judge always deemed indispensable with strangers. For you must know that Indian-hating was no monopoly of Colonel Mordock's, but a passion in one form or other, and to a degree, greater or less, largely shared among the class to which he belonged and Indian-hating still exists, and no doubt will continue to exist so long as Indians do. Indian-hating, then, shall be my first theme, and Colonel Mordock, the Indian-hater, my next and last. With which the stranger, settling himself in his seat, commenced, the hearer paying marked regard, slowly smoking, his glance, meanwhile, steadfastly abstracted towards the deck, but his right ear so disposed towards the speaker that each word came through as little atmospheric intervention as possible. To intensify the sense of hearing, he seemed to sink the sense of sight. No complacence of mere speech could have been so flattering or expressed such striking politeness as this mute eloquence of thoroughly digesting attention. Chapter 26 containing the metaphysics of Indian-hating, according to the views of one evidently not so prepossessed as Rousseau in favor of savages. 
Well, the judge, the judge always began in these words. The backwoodsman's hatred of the Indian has been a topic for some remark. In the earlier times of the frontier, the passion was thought to be readily accounted for. But Indian rapine having mostly ceased through regions where it once prevailed, the philanthropist is surprised that Indian hating has not, in like degree, ceased with it. He wonders why the backwoodsman still regards the red man in much the same spirit that a jury does a murderer, or a trapper a wildcat, a creature in whose behalf mercy were not wisdom. Truce is vain, he must be executed. A curious point, the judge would continue, which perhaps not everybody, even upon explanation, may fully understand. While, in order for any one to approach to an understanding, it is necessary for him to learn, or if he already know, to bear in mind, what manner of man the backwoodsman is. As for what manner of man the Indian is, many know, either from history or experience. The backwoodsman is a lonely man. He is a thoughtful man. He is a man strong and unsophisticated. Impulsive. He is what some might call unprincipled. At any rate, he is self-willed, being one who less hearkens to what others may say about things than looks for himself to see what are things themselves. If in straits there are few to help, he must depend upon himself, he must continually look to himself. Hence self-reliance, to the degree of standing by his own judgment, though it stand alone, not that he deems himself infallible. Too many mistakes in following trails prove the contrary. But he thinks that nature destines such sagacity as she has given him, as she destines it to the possum. To these fellow beings of the wilds their untutored sagacity is their best dependence. If with either it prove faulty, if the possums betray it to the trap, or the backwoodsmen's mislead him into ambuscade, there are consequences to be undergone, but no self-blame. As with the possum, instincts prevail with the backwoodsman over precepts. Like the possum, the backwoodsman presents the spectacle of a creature dwelling exclusively among the works of God. Yet these, truth must confess, breed little in him of a godly mind. Small bowing and scraping is his, further than when with bent knee he points his rifle or picks its flint. With few companions, solitude by necessity his lengthened lot, he stands the trial. No slight one, since next to dying, solitude rightly born is perhaps of fortitude the most rigorous test. But not merely is the backwoodsman content to be alone, but in no few cases is anxious to be so. The sight of smoke ten miles off is provocation to one more removed from man, one step deeper into nature. Is it that he feels that whatever man may be, man is not the universe? That glory, beauty, kindness are not all engrossed by him? That, as the presence of man frights birds away, so many bird-like thoughts? But, be that how it will, the backwoodsman is not without some fineness to his nature. Harry Orson as he looks, it may be with him as with the Shetland seal, 
beneath the bristles lurks the fur. Though held in a sort a barbarian, the backwoodsman would seem to America what Alexander was to Asia, captain in the vanguard of conquering civilization. Whatever the nation's growing opulence or power, does it not lackey his heels? Pathfinder, provider of security to those who come after him, for himself he asks nothing but hardship. Worthy to be compared with Moses in the Exodus, or the Emperor Julian in Gaul, who on foot and bare-browed at the height of covered or mounted legions marched so through the elements day after day. The tide of emigration, let it roll as it will, never overwhelms the backwoodsman into itself. He rides upon advance as the Polynesian upon the comb of the surf. Thus, though he keep moving on through life, he maintains with respect to nature much the same unaltered relation throughout, with her creatures too, including panthers and Indians. Hence, it is not unlikely that, accurate as the theory of the Peace Congress may be with respect to those two varieties of beings, among others, yet the backwoodsman might be qualified to throw out some practical suggestions. As the child born to a backwoodsman must in turn lead his father's life, a life which, as related to humanity, is related mainly to Indians, it is thought best not to mince matters out of delicacy, but to tell the boy pretty plainly what an Indian is and what you must expect from him. For however charitable it may be to view Indians as members of the Society of Friends, yet to affirm them such to one ignorant of Indians, whose lonely path lies a long way through their lands, this, in the event, might prove not only injudicious but cruel. At least something of this kind would seem the maxim upon which backwoods education is based. Accordingly, if in youth the backwoodsman inclined to knowledge, as is generally the case, he hears little from his schoolmasters, the old chroniclers of the forest, but histories of Indians lying, Indian theft, Indian double-dealing, Indian fraud and perfidy, Indian want of conscience, Indian bloodthirstiness, Indian diabolism, histories which, though of wild woods, are almost as full of things unangelic as the Nougat calendar or the annals of Europe. In these Indian narratives and traditions the lad is thoroughly grounded. As the twig is bent, the trees inclined. The instinct of antipathy against an Indian grows in the backwoodsman with the sense of good and bad, right and wrong. In one breath he learns that a brother is to be loved, and an Indian to be hated. Such are the facts, the judge would say, upon which, if one seek to moralize, he must do so with an eye to them. It is terrible that one creature should so regard another should make it conscience to abhor an entire race. It is terrible, but is it surprising? Surprising that one should hate a race which he believes to be red from a cause akin to that which makes some tribes of garden insects green. A race whose name is upon the frontier a memento mori, painted to him in every evil light, now a horse-thief like those in Moyamensing, now an assassin like a New York rowdy, now a treaty-breaker like an Austrian, now a palmer with poisoned arrows, 
now a judicial murderer and Jeffreys, after a fierce farce of trial condemning his victim to bloody death, or a Jew, with hospitable speeches cousining some fainting stranger into ambuscade, there to burk him and account it a deed grateful to Manitou, his god. Still, all this is less advanced as truths of the Indians than as examples of the backwoodsman's impression of them, in which the uncharitable may think he does them some injustice. Certain it is the Indians themselves think so, quite unanimously too. The Indians indeed protest against the backwoodsman's view of them, and some think that one cause of their returning his antipathy so sincerely as they do is their moral indignation at being so libelled by him, as they really believe and say. But whether on this or any point the Indians should be permitted to testify for themselves, to the exclusion of other testimony, is a question that may be left to the Supreme Court. At any rate, it has been observed that when an Indian becomes a genuine proselyte to Christianity, such cases, however, not being very many, though indeed entire tribes are sometimes nominally brought to the true light, he will not in that case conceal his enlightened conviction that his race's portion of nature is total depravity, and in that way as much admits that the backwoodsman's worst idea of it is not very far from true while, on the other hand, those red men who are the greatest sticklers for the theory of Indian virtue and Indian loving-kindness are sometimes the errantest horse-thieves and tomahawkers among them. So, at least, avers the backwoodsman. And though, knowing the Indian nature as he thinks he does, he fancies he is not ignorant that an Indian may in some points deceive himself almost as effectually as in bush tactics he can another yet his theory and his practice as above contrasted seem to involve an inconsistency so extreme that the backwoodsman only accounts for it on the supposition that when a tomahawking red man advances the notion of the benignity of the red race it is but part and parcel with that subtle strategy which he finds so useful in war in hunting and the general conduct of life in further explanation of that deep abhorrence with which the backwoodsman regards the savage, the judge used to think it might perhaps a little help to consider what kind of stimulus to it is furnished in those forest histories and traditions before spoken of, in which behalf he would tell the story of the little colony of Wrights and Weavers, originally seven cousins from Virginia, who, after successive removals with their families, at last established themselves near the southern frontier of the bloody ground, Kentucky. They were strong, brave men, but unlike many of the pioneers in those days, theirs was no love of conflict for conflict's sake. Step by step they had been lured to their lonely resting-place by the ever-beckoning seductions of a fertile and virgin land, with a singular exemption, during the march, from Indian molestation. But clearings made and houses built, the bright shield was soon to turn its other side. After repeated persecutions and eventual hostilities, forced on them by a dwindled tribe in their neighborhood, persecutions resulting in loss of crops and cattle, hostilities in which they lost two of their number, illy to be spared, besides others getting painful wounds. The five remaining cousins made, with some serious concessions, a kind of treaty with Mokmahok, 
the chief, being to this induced by the harryings of the enemy, leaving them no peace. But they were further prompted, indeed, first incited, by the suddenly changed ways of Mokmahok, who, though hitherto deemed a savage almost perfidious as Caesar Borgia, yet now put on a seeming reverse of this, engaging to bury the hatchet, smoke the pipe, and be friends forever. Not friends in the mere sense of renouncing enmity, but in the sense of kindliness, active and familiar. But what the chief now seemed did not wholly blind them to what the chief had been, so that, though in no small degree influenced by his change of bearing, they still distrusted him enough to covenant with him, among other articles on their side, that, though friendly visits should be exchanged between the wigwams and the cabins, yet the five cousins should never, on any account, be expected to enter the chief's lodge together. The intention was, though they reserved it, that if ever under the guise of amity the chief should mean them mischief and affect it, it should be but partially, so that some of the five might survive, not only for their family's sake, but also for retributions. Nevertheless, Mokmahok did upon a time, with such fine art and pleasing carriage, win their confidence, that he brought them all together to a feast of bear's meat, and thereby stratagem ended them. Years after, over their calcined bones, and those of all their families, the chief, reproached for his treachery by a proud hunter whom he had made captive, jeered out, "'Treachery? Pale face! "'Twas they who broke their covenant first in coming altogether. "'They that broke it first in trusting Mokmahok. At this point the judge would pause, and, lifting his hand and rolling his eyes, exclaim in a solemn enough voice, "'Circling wiles and bloody lusts! the acuteness and genius of the chief but make him the more atrocious. After another pause he would begin an imaginary kind of dialogue between a backwoodsman and a questioner. But are all Indians like Mokmahok? Not all have proved such, but in the least harmful may lie his germ. There is an Indian nature Indian blood is in me, is the half-breed's threat. But are not some Indians kind? Yes, but kind Indians are mostly lazy and reputed simple. At all events are seldom chiefs. Chiefs among the red man being taken from the active and those accounted wise. Hence, with small promotion, kind Indians have but proportionate influence and kind Indians may be forced to do unkind biddings. So, beware the Indian, kind or unkind, said Daniel Boone, who lost his sons by them. But have all you backwoodsmen been some way victimized by Indians? No. Well, and in certain cases may not at least some few of you be favored by them? Yes, but scarce one among us so self-important or so selfish-minded as to hold his personal exemption from Indian outrage such a set-off against the contrary experience of so many others as that he must needs in a general way think well of Indians, or if he do, an arrow in his flank might suggest a pertinent doubt. In short, according to the judge, if we at all credit the backwoodsman, 
his feeling against Indians to be taken aright must be considered as being not so much on his own account as on others, or jointly on both accounts. True it is, scarce a family he knows, but some member of it or connection has been by Indians maimed or scalped. What avails, then, that some one Indian or some two or three treat a backwoodsman friendly-like? He fears me, he thinks. Take my rifle from me, give him motive, and what will come? Or if not so, how know I what involuntary preparations may be going on in him for things as unbeknown in present time to him as me? A sort of chemical preparation in the soul for malice, as chemical preparation in the body for malady. Not that the backwoodsman ever used those words, you see, but the judge found him expression for his meaning. And this point he would conclude with, saying that what is called a friendly Indian is a very rare sort of creature, and well it was so, for no ruthlessness exceeds that of a friendly Indian turned enemy. A coward friend, he makes a valiant foe. But thus far the passion in question has been viewed in a general way as that of a community. When to his due share of this the backwoodsman adds his private passion, we have then the stock out of which is formed, if formed at all, the Indian-hater par excellence. The Indian-hater par excellence, the judge defined to be one who, having with his mother's milk drank in small love for red men, in youth or early manhood, ere the sensibilities become osseous, receives at their hands some signal outrage, or, which in effect is much the same, some of his kin have, or some friend. Now, nature all around him, by her solitudes wooing or bidding him muse upon this matter, he accordingly does so, till the thought develops such attraction that, much as struggling vapors troop from all sides to a storm-cloud, so straggling thoughts of other outrages troop to the nucleus thought, assimilate with it, and swell it. At last, taking counsel with the elements, he comes to his resolution. An intenser Hannibal, he makes a vow, the hate of which is a vortex from whose suction scarce the remotest chip of the guilty race may reasonably feel secure. Next he declares himself and settles his temporal affairs. With the solemnity of a Spaniard-turned monk, he takes leave of his kin. Or rather, these leave-takings have something of the still more impressive finality of deathbed adieus. Last, he commits himself to the forest primeval, there, so long as life shall be his, to act upon a calm, cloistered scheme of strategical, implacable, and lonesome vengeance. Ever on the noiseless trail, cool, collected, patient, less seen than felt, snuffing, smelling, a leather-stalking nemesis, in the settlements he will not be seen again. In the eyes of old companions tears may start at some chance thing that speaks of him, but they never look for him, nor call, they know he will not come. Suns and seasons fleet, the tiger-lily blows and falls, babes are born and leap in their mother's arms, but the Indian-hater is gone as good to his long home, and terror is his epitaph. Here the judge, not unaffected, would pause again, but presently resume. 
how evident that in strict speech there can be no biography of an indian hater par excellence any more than one of a swordfish or other deep-sea denizen or which is still less imaginable one of a dead man the career of the indian hater par excellence has the impenetrability of the fate of a lost steamer doubtless events terrible ones have happened must have happened but the powers that be in nature have taken order that they shall never become news but luckily for the curious there is a species of diluted indian hater one whose heart proves not so steely as his brain soft enticements of domestic life too often draw him back from the ascetic trail a monk who apostatizes to the world at times like a mariner too though much abroad he may have a wife and family in some green harbor which he does not forget it is with him as with the papist converts in senegal fasting and mortification prove hard to bear the judge with his usual judgment always thought that the intense solitude to which the indian hater consigns himself has by its overawing influence no little to do with relaxing his vow he would relate instances where after some months lonely scoutings the indian hater is suddenly seized with a sort of calenture hurries openly towards the first smoke though he knows it is in indians announces himself as a lost hunter gives the savage his rifle throws himself upon his charity embraces him with much affection imploring the privilege of living a while in his sweet companionship what is too often the sequel of so distempered a procedure may be best known by those who best know the indian upon the whole the judge by two and thirty good and sufficient reasons would maintain that there was no known vocation whose consistent following calls for such containings as that of the indian hater par excellence in the highest view he considered such a soul one peeping out but once an age for the diluted indian hater although the vacations he permits himself impair the keeping of the character yet it should not be overlooked that this is the man who by his very infirmity enables us to form surmises however inadequate of what indian hating in its perfection is one moment gently interrupted the cosmopolitan here and let me refill my calumet which being done the other proceeded chapter twenty seven some account of a man of questionable morality but who nevertheless would seem entitled to the esteem of that eminent english moralist who said he liked a good hater coming to mention the man to whose story all thus far said was but the introduction the judge who like you was a great smoker would insist upon all the company taking cigars and then lighting a fresh one himself rise in his place and with the solemnest voice say gentlemen let us smoke to the memory of colonel john moredock when after several whiffs taken standing in deep silence and deeper reverie he would resume his seat and his discourse something in these words though colonel john moredock was not an indian hater par excellence he yet cherished a kind of sentiment towards the red man and in that degree and so acted out his sentiment as sufficiently to merit the tribute just rendered to his memory 
John Mordock was the son of a woman married thrice, and thrice widowed by a tomahawk. The three successive husbands of this woman had been pioneers, and with them she had wandered from wilderness to wilderness, always on the frontier. With nine children she at last found herself at a little clearing, afterwards Vincennes. There she joined a company about to remove to the new country of Illinois. On the eastern side of Illinois there were then no settlements, but on the west side, the shore of the Mississippi, there were, near the mouth of the Kaskaskia, some old hamlets of French. To the vicinity of these hamlets, very innocent and pleasant places, a new Arcadia, Mrs. Mordock's party was destined. For thereabouts, among the vines, they meant to settle. They embarked upon the Wabash in boats, proposing descending that stream into the Ohio, and the Ohio into the Mississippi, and so, northwards, towards the point to be reached. All went well till they made the rock of the Grand Tower on the Mississippi, where they had to land and drag their boats round a point swept by a strong current. Here a party of Indians lying in wait rushed out and murdered nearly all of them. The widow was among the victims with her children, John excepted, who, some fifty miles distant, was following with the second party. He was just entering upon manhood, when thus left in nature sole survivor of his race. Other youngsters might have turned mourners. He turned avenger. His nerves were electric wires, sensitive but steel. He was one who, from self-possession, could be made neither to flush nor pale. It is said that when the tidings were brought him, he was ashore sitting beneath a hemlock, eating his dinner of venison. And as the tidings were told him, after the first start he kept on eating, but slowly and deliberately, chewing the wild news with the wild meat, as if both together, turned to Kyle, together should sinew him to his intent. From that meal he rose an Indian hater. He rose, got his arms, prevailed upon some comrades to join him, and without delay started to discover who were the actual transgressors. They proved to be a band of twenty renegades from various tribes, outlaws even among Indians, and had formed themselves into a marauding crew. No opportunity for action being at the time presented, he dismissed his friends, told them to go on thanking them, and saying he would ask their aid at some future day. For upwards of a year, alone in the wilds, he watched the crew. Once, what he thought a favorable chance having occurred, it being midwinter and the savages encamped apparently to remain so, he anew mustered his friends and marched against them. But, getting wind of his coming, the enemy fled, and in such panic that everything was left behind but their weapons. During the winter, much the same thing happened upon two subsequent occasions. The next year he sought them at the head of a party pledged to serve him for forty days. At last the hour came. It was on the shore of the Mississippi. From their covert, Mordock and his men dimly described the gang of canes in the red dusk of evening, paddling over to a jungled island in midstream, there the more securely to lodge. For Mordock's retributive spirit in the wilderness spoke ever to their trepidations now, like the voice calling through the garden. 
waiting until the dead of night, the whites swam the river, towing after them a raft laden with their arms. On landing, Mordock cut the fastenings of the enemy's canoes, and turned them with his own raft adrift, resolved that there should be neither escape for the Indians, nor safety except in victory for the whites. Victorious the whites were, but three of the Indians saved themselves by taking to the stream. Mordock's band lost not a man. Three of the murderers survived. He knew their names and persons. In the course of three years, each successively fell by his own hand. All were now dead. But this did not suffice. He made no avowal, but to kill Indians had become his passion. As an athlete he had few equals, as a shot none, in single combat not to be beaten. Master of that woodland cunning, enabling the adept to subsist where the tyro would perish, and expert in all those arts by which an enemy is pursued for weeks, perhaps months, without once suspecting it, he kept to the forest. The solitary Indian that met him died. When a murder was descried, he would either secretly pursue their track for some chance to strike at least one blow, or if, while thus engaged, he himself was discovered, he would elude them by superior skill. Many years he spent thus, and though after a time he was, in a degree, restored to the ordinary life of the region and period, yet it is believed that John Mordock never let pass an opportunity of quenching an Indian. Sins of commission in that kind may have been his, but none of omission. It were err to suppose, the judge would say, that this gentleman was naturally ferocious, or peculiarly possessed of those qualities which, unhelped by provocation of events, tend to withdraw man from social life. On the contrary, Mordock was an example of something apparently self-contradicting, certainly curious, but at the same time undeniable namely that nearly all indian haters have at bottom loving hearts or at any rate hearts if anything more generous than the average certain it is that to the degree in which he mingled in the life of the settlements mordock showed himself not without humane feelings no cold husband or colder father he and though often and long away from his household bore its needs in mind and provided for them he could be very convivial, told a good story, though never of his more private exploits, and sung a capital song, hospitable, not backward to help a neighbor, by report benevolent as retributive in secret, while in a general manner, though sometimes grave, as is not unusual with men of his complexion, a sultry and tragical brown, yet with nobody, Indians excepted, otherwise than courteous in a manly fashion a moccasined gentleman, admired and loved, in fact, no one more popular, as an incident to follow may prove. His bravery, whether in Indian fight or any other, was unquestionable. An officer in the ranging service during the War of 1812, he acquitted himself with more than credit. Of his soldierly character this anecdote is told. Not long after Hull's dubious surrender at Detroit, Mordock, with some of his rangers, rode up at night to a log house, there to rest till morning. The horses being attended to, supper over, and sleeping places assigned the troop, 
the host showed the colonel his best bed not on the ground like the rest but a bed that stood on legs but out of delicacy the guest declined to monopolize it or indeed to occupy it at all when to increase the inducement as the host thought he was told that a general officer had once slept in that bed who pray asked the colonel general hull then you must not take offence said the colonel buttoning up his coat but really no coward's bed for me however comfortable accordingly he took up with valor's bed a cold one on the ground at one time the colonel was a member of the territorial council of illinois and at the formation of the state government was pressed to become candidate for governor but begged to be excused and though he declined to give his reasons for declining yet by those who best knew him the cause was not wholly unsurmised in his official capacity he might be called upon to enter into friendly treaties with indian tribes a thing not to be thought of and even did no such contingency arise yet he felt there would be an impropriety in the governor of illinois stealing out now and then during a recess of the legislative bodies for a few days shooting at human beings within the limits of his paternal chief magistracy if the governorship offered large honors from mordock it demanded larger sacrifices these were incompatibles in short he was not unaware that to be a consistent indian hater involves the renunciation of ambition with its objects the pomps and glories of the world and since religion pronouncing such things vanities accounts it merit to renounce them therefore so far as this goes indian hating whatever may be thought of it in other respects may be regarded as not wholly without the efficacy of a devout sentiment here the narrator paused then after his long and irksome sitting started to his feet and regulating his disordered shirt-frill and at the same time adjustingly shaking his legs down in his rumpled pantaloons concluded there i have done having given you not my story mind or my thoughts but another's and now for your friend coonskins i doubt not that if the judge were here he would pronounce him a sort of comprehensive colonel mordock who too much spreading his passion shallows it chapter twenty eight moot points touching the late colonel john mordock charity charity exclaimed the cosmopolitan never a sound judgment without charity when man judges man charity is less a bounty from our mercy than just allowance for the insensible leeway of human fallibility god forbid that my eccentric friend should be what you hint you do not know him or but imperfectly his outside deceived you at first it came near deceiving even me but i seized a chance when owing to indignation against some wrong he laid himself a little open i seized that lucky chance i say to inspect his heart and found it an inviting oyster in a forbidding shell his outside is but put on ashamed of his own goodness he treats mankind as those strange old uncles in romances do their nephews snapping at them all the time and yet loving them as the apple of their eye well my words with him were few perhaps he is not what i took him for yes for aught i know you may be right 
Glad to hear it. Charity, like poetry, should be cultivated, if only for its being graceful. And now, since you have renounced your notion, I should be happy, would you, so to speak, renounce your story, too. That story strikes me with even more incredulity than wonder. To me some parts don't hang together. If the man of hate, how could John Mordock be also the man of love? Either his lone campaigns are fabulous as Hercules, or else those being true, what was thrown in about his geniality is but garnish. In short, if ever there was such a man as Mordock, he, in my way of thinking, was either misanthrope or nothing, and his misanthropy the more intense from being focused on one race of men. Though, like suicide, man-hatred would seem peculiarly a Roman and a Grecian passion, that is, pagan, yet the annals of neither Rome nor Greece can produce the equal in man-hatred of Colonel Mordock, as the judge and you have painted him. As for this Indian-hating in general, I can only say of it what Dr. Johnson said of the alleged Lisbon earthquake. Sir, I don't believe it. Didn't believe it? Why not? Clashed with any little prejudice of his? Dr. Johnson had no prejudice, but, like a certain other person, with an ingenuous smile, he had sensibilities, and those were pained. Dr. Johnson was a good Christian, wasn't he? He was. Suppose he had been something else? Then small incredulity as to the alleged earthquake. Suppose he had been also a misanthrope. Then small incredulity as to the robberies and murders alleged to have been perpetrated under the pall of smoke and ashes. The infidels of the time were quick to credit those reports, and worse. So true it is that, while religion, contrary to the common notion, implies in certain cases a spirit of slow reserve as to assent, infidelity, which claims to despise credulity, is sometimes swift to it. You rather jumble together misanthropy and infidelity. I do not jumble them, they are coordinates. For misanthropy, springing from the same root with disbelief of religion, is twin with that. It springs from the same root, I say. For set aside materialism, and what is an atheist but one who does not, or will not, see in the universe a ruling principle of love? And what a misanthrope, but one who does not, or will not, see in man a ruling principle of kindness? Don't you see, in either case the vice consists in a want of confidence? What sort of a sensation is misanthropy? Might as well ask me what sort of sensation is hydrophobia. Don't know, never had it. But I have often wondered what it can be like. Can a misanthrope feel warm, I ask myself? Take ease. Be companionable with himself. Can a misanthrope smoke a cigar and muse? How fair is he in solitude? Has the misanthrope such a thing as an appetite? Shall a peach refresh him? The effervescence of champagne, with what eye does he behold it? Is summer good to him? Of long winters, how much can he sleep? What are his dreams? How feels he, and what does he, when suddenly awakened alone at dead of night by fusillades of thunder? Like you, said the stranger, I can't understand the misanthrope. 
so far as my experience goes either mankind is worthy one's best love or else i have been lucky never has it been my lot to have been wronged though but in the smallest degree cheating backbiting superciliousness disdain hard-heartedness and all that brood i know but by report cold regards tossed over the sinister shoulder of a former friend ingratitude in a beneficiary treachery in a confidant such things may be but i must take somebody's word for it now the bridge that has carried me over so well shall i not praise it ingratitude to the worthy bridge not to do so man is a noble fellow and in the age of satirists i am not displeased to find one who has confidence in him and bravely stands up for him yes i always speak a good word for man and what is more am always ready to do a good deed for him you are a man after my own heart responded the cosmopolitan with a candor which lost nothing by its calmness indeed he added our sentiments agree so that were they written in a book whose was whose few but the nicest critics might determine since we are thus joined in mind said the stranger why not be joined in hand my hand is always at the service of virtue frankly extending it to him as to virtue personified and now said the stranger cordially retaining his hand you know our fashion here at the west it may be a little low but it is kind briefly we being newly made friends must drink together what say you uh, thank you but indeed you must excuse me why because to tell the truth i have to-day met so many old friends all free-hearted convivial gentlemen that really really though for the present i succeed in mastering it i am at bottom almost in the condition of a sailor who stepping ashore after a long voyage ere night reels with loving welcomes his head of less capacity than his heart at the allusion to old friends the stranger's countenance a little fell as a jealous lover's might at hearing from his sweetheart of former ones but rallying he said no doubt they treated you to something strong but wine surely that gentle creature wine come let us have a little gentle wine at one of these little tables here come come then a saying to roll about like a full pipe in the sea sang in a voice which it had more of good fellowship had there been less of a latent squeak to it let us drink of the wine of the vine benign that sparkles warm in zanzibine the cosmopolitan with longing eye upon him stood as sorely tempted and wavering a moment then abruptly stepping towards him with a look of dissolved surrender said when mermaid songs move figureheads then may glory golded women try their blandishments on me but a good fellow singing a good song he woos forth my every spike so that my whole hull like a ship's sailing by a magnetic rock caves in with acquiescence enough when one has a heart of a certain sort it is in vain trying to be resolute End of section 13